Hello ah. and welcome to the Grin podcast. Hello Prashant. Thanks Hi. for joining us. I am Hindols and Gupta and this is of course the Grin podcast. We are delighted to have today Prashant Hosur Suhas who teaches political science at the Eastern Connecticut State University. He's joining us from Hartford, Connecticut and I'm invited Prashant Hosur Suhas to join this podcast for a very exciting reason. He's been spending a lot of time trying to understand a unique idea or unique ideas that came or were contributed to global strategic thought through the narrative of one of India's great epics the Mahabharat the centerpiece of that epic is this great war that happens the war of kurukshetra and prashant is here to tell us why this is such an exciting project and what he's really thinking about prashant yeah thanks again hindol thanks for having me on the podcast uh, i mean the mo- the initial motivation really came from uh, reading some west uh, some select western interpretations of india strategic culture where the grand conclusion that these folks came to was that there was no meaningful indian strategic culture and uh, they were raj- largely referring to an indic strategic or lack of an indic indic uh, strategy of the emphasis of uh prarabdha dharma and surrendering to one's fate uh of course there has been quite a bit of a pushback against this narrative but at the same time uh i would say that uh we haven't really hit the jugular vein of that entire uh sort of um, enterprise that started really in the late 80s and early 90s so what i started doing was to look at mahabharat as essentially a repository of strategic knowledge where really the central message uh, as succinctly summarized in the bhagavad gita was karma yoga so it you just don't simply surrender to fate but rather you fight for uh, you know you you don't think, think about the outcome but you actually act so there is a lot of emphasis given to karma in Bhag- in the Mah- so it actually goes against this entire idea of surrendering to your fate so that's where the initial uh, motivation came from and specifically i started once uh, once i sort of got into once i had the basic story down and everything i started paying a lot of attention to the shanti parva now for those of uh, those people who have uh, even had a nodding interest in looking at the civil service exams in india would know that shanti parva is essentially a prescribed uh, syllabus it's prescribed as one of the things that you, you must know for the exams as well so again shanti parva is is one of the 18 books in the mahabharat um, and it essentially has a lot of advice on governance and statecraft that is uh, sort of uh, given down from the grandfather bhishma who's one of the central characters of the mahabharat to his uh, grandchildren who win the war against another set of their cousins so bhishma is sort of this character who gets uh, is a grandfather who's stuck between two sets of grandchildren uh, and that's an entirely different story in and of itself the philosophical meaning of what it means to be bhishma is an entirely different conversation but it's really about a a, a variety of uh, a set of advices that bhishma gives the newly coronated king yudhishthira and the other thing before i actually uh, state my central thesis is that uh i normally don't 
uh, approached the study of Indian statecraft as a uniquely Indian way of studying statecraft. In the same way, we don't judge India's contribution to mathematics or science as uniquely Indian. I mean, gravity doesn't have a uniquely Indian or a Chinese characteristic. Gravity is gravity. Similarly, you know, uh, the the rather than saying there's a uniquely Indian way of thinking, which is, uh, you know, which can lead to issues regarding Orientalism and things like that, as you, you know, we, have, we were discussing this earlier. But rather, I would say India's contribution to the general corpus of strategic thinking. And Mahabharat makes a very, has made several contributions uh, to that. And contributions that till date are practiced unknowingly or knowingly. And so that's where I'm coming from. So the Shanti Parva, yeah. Uh, so the Shanti Parva itself has a variety. It covers a variety of topics, uh, including uh, taxation, uh, you know, governance, law and order, domestically, and then of course international relations. Now, and so my work, at least in the last few months, has largely been focused on just four or five shlokas from the Mahabharat. So. Uh, I don't claim that, you know, and you cannot just, uh, uh, which is what some people do, which is you just take a central theme that cuts across all chapters and you make a statement that this is what the Mahabharata central claim is. That's a little, uh, that's a little superficial, I feel. So this section, the four slokas that I focus on is really talking about a particular uh, type of international relations. A type of international relations that is a major subfield within the modern day international relations. Something, a, a term you may have heard of called bandwagoning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so, and how to deal with a, how to deal with an adversary that is far more powerful than you are. What do you do in such circumstances? And so Yudhishthir asks this interesting question. Um, and actually, I would like to stop before I actually get into the subject matter. If you have any questions for me, yes, so and I far. wanted to ask you how did you choose the Mahabharat and why did you choose the Mahabharat? And when you chose mm-hmm. the Mahabharat, how did you go about selecting the portion uh, or portions mm. that you wanted to delve deeper into? So, the Mahabharat was selected for a couple of reasons, Indol. Uh, one is that we all know Mahabharat is about a major war, in fact, there are multiple wars in the Mahabharat. Uh, this one just happens to be the most central uh, war. In fact, the war is after the Shanti Parva, there are four other Parvas. So we are the end of the Mahabharat war actually is only the 14th book. So there's a lot more that happens. And unfortunately, it only gets more depressing. And but that's another matter. But there's a lot of uh, Emphasis when people talk about Indian strategic culture, we routinely go back to the Mahabharata and the Ramayana uh, as uh, as sources of strategic culture, as uh, sources or sort of fountainheads of uh, Indi- Indic thought on these matters. That's the first aspect. Second is there has been some work done on it, and uh, and when I re- read them, they obviously were inspiring, and it actually led me to asking more questions about specific portions of the Mahabharata. So I can't say that this is completely out of the blue. I owe a great deal to those who have written before me. And uh, and actually there are a few books I can even uh, quote maybe later. But so that, so reading those works and talking to people who themselves had not only served in the military, Indian military, but had read the Mahabharata, 
talking to them as uh, as well actually led me in this direction so that's the uh, background of why i chose the let's Mahabharata. talk a little bit about what the findings are now sorry you were about yeah. to say something go do go on yeah so that led me to this direction on talking about bandwagoning you know uh, so these uh, uh, shlokas in the shanti parva are very interesting so this is a conversation that is going on between yudhishthir and bhishma now and yudhishthir essentially asks bhishma as to how do you deal uh, with a foe that has many allies who has many allies and uh, has a large force essentially so how do you deal with an asymmetrically powerful ally is or or enemy rather so the then bhishma essentially says now he also is quoting past scholars here so what he says is in this connection the wise usually quote a discourse between brihaspati and indra so there's a conversation within a conversation that is going to happen now so uh so bhishma starts reciting this entire episode or a dialogue between indra and brihaspati uh, the the dev guru or the, the the teacher of the gods where uh brihaspati or uh, guru says uh, uh, the teacher of the gods says that when dealing with a more powerful enemy you always have to follow a twin policy of conciliatory speech along with the use of force this comes in uh, you know in the shanti parva uh, and it's uh, in section i think uh, 30 33 of the shanti parva so again if you if if for those of you who have been following indian politics over the last fortnight you would see a bit of this here the weaker side is using the twin policy of conciliatory speech and the use of force uh that's the first part and then he goes on to say say further that at times the king should even prostrate himself before a powerful foe uh it is again desirable that acting heedfully uh, himself he should seek to uh, compass the victor's uh, uh, destruction when the latter becomes heedless so talk nice and be con- conciliatory when the the more powerful your powerful enemy is on high alert but the moment he becomes heedless you strike this is this is not coming out of any military handbook of india's neighbors this is coming from the mahabharat we are unfortunately forgetting our own traditions uh and this is brihaspati telling indra and bhishma is reminding yudhishthir of this conversation in the shanti parva uh when i was relooking at some of these shlokas in the context of what's going on right now I, you know it was quite chilling just to read this and when you say so, and you then he goes on, on right now you're of course referring to the conflict between india and pakistan in south asia exactly where imran khan is talking very uh, talking peace but the military is uh, doing quite, uh, quite the opposite which is all the use of proxy story in a sense in pakistan's history exactly so uh, so that's that's what in brihaspati is telling indra that a weaker king should do against a stronger king you see and then the final shloka i'm just giving the translations sure. here by prostrating oneself by gifts of tribute by uttering sweet words one should humble oneself before a more powerful king one should never do anything that may arouse the suspicions of one's powerful foe 
the weaker ruler should under such circumstances carefully avoid every act that may awaken suspicion so there are two components to it one is wait until the and if powerful foe becomes heedless and you act at that point the second is while the person is actually on high alert the most uh, the stronger king is on high alert you do all these things sweet talking gift giving you know a hum- being humble seeming yes, agreeable indeed. and this is from the mahabharat uh, raj dharma anushasana parva which is a sub parva within the right. shanti parva so in modern day lit- international relations literature of course these f- folks have not necessarily read the mahabharat there's a there's a rich repository of literature on rivalry literature you know uh, uh, rivalry escalation onset escalation and termination there's 30 years of literature on this there's power transition literature where you these fo- uh, these folks largely look at power gaps between countries and how as the power gaps narrow that increases the probability of war and there's a entire uh, cottage industry on bandwagoning literature how do states behave when they are faced with a very powerful state um and uh, their hypotheses are largely in line with what bhishma uh, bhishma is telling or what rather brihaspati is telling why do you think some of these concepts prashant have not been studied so far with any depth i think there are a couple of reasons uh one is i i'm highly suspicious of the way the epics are being taught or how they are what what is their status in uh the ac- academy especially in the social sciences in india there are some important questions that re- require to yeah, be asked i agree asked. with you I, and uh, i'm not saying that this is this i mean unfortunately the moment you say this uh you get branded as all sorts of things But that is rhetoric and, i mean uh, you know i think that sort of political rhetoric will go on i think one has to look beyond mm-hmm. that sort of rhetoric and name calling to really get to a deeper yeah. understanding of what's really happening in societies and how it could add to the epistemological you know advancement of global mm-hmm. learning mm-hmm. and so i think that's there and uh, there's a general disconnect from the sanskrit language yes which is really tragic well. absolutely uh, it's very tragic and that keeps uh people from accessing some of this literature and somehow studying sanskrit is being seen as you know i don't know all uh, as elitist or as anachronistic depending on which side of the aisle you're on plastic horrendously enough i mean i i am surprised i'm i'm some sometimes surprised and astonished to hear that but uh, but actually if you look at it in the so, west and i'm you know since both of us are sitting in the west so to speak at the moment uh, you in america and me in england <laughs> you would know what kind of emphasis there is towards classics in in western countries uh and the emphasis towards and, learning classics and the study of realism in political science does not end without knowing what Thucydides said in 450 BC and uh, and you have to go back to that and we somehow are very uh, bashful about talking about uh, uh, the mahabharat and things like that at least i think it's changed now in the last few years it has changed actually i have to give compliments to you and uh, some of your colleagues who have done who sort of spearheaded this but uh but because of that there's at least a ecosystem where you can talk about these things today uh but this was not possible at the time when i was working for a think tank in delhi i mean there it was it was still largely what do modern indian strategists have to say uh 
and the best you could do is talk about arthashastra which incidentally quotes extensively from the mahabharata oh absolutely and uh, you know the point of all of this uh, and not just um, indian uh, ancient writing uh, if you look at classical literature everywhere it's a continuum it is not a bubble mm-hmm. if you know what i mean it's not a silo uh, classical texts are exactly. not silos in themselves they are in fact a continuum they are really as i have argued and many others have argued uh, they are really a society developing and evolving arguments about itself one mm-hmm. could argue Absolutely. that is the role of all literature but that is certainly the role of ancient literature or classical literature right. and uh, and therefore to look right. at these things in silos is a fundamental mistake you have to look at them in continuum Absolutely. for instance since you study the mahabharata i'm sure uh, you understand only too well uh, the the ecosystem of the mahabharata is so much more complex the moral universe Absolutely. of the mahabharata is so much more complex then it's earlier yes. um, epic so to speak the epic that preceded it the ramayan right i mean that is obviously right. Uh, right. not as complex because of course you can see society by the time the mahabharat comes around has become far more complex and therefore it has constituted a far more complicated universe so we should see them in continuum exactly i mean in the ramayan for example even the villain is close to being oh, yes. perfect i mean you know absolutely i mean indeed i remember the villain so to speak in the ramayan you know ravana um actually is is so um enlightened that he's building a stairway yes. to heaven mm-hmm. and he tells sita that unless you uh accept me i'm not yes, going to touch you he sa- he, he does a, make that he has statement he is very firm moral moorings in a sense right right so so that's where you you get a perfect villain a perfect uh hero you know in that here it's it's a lot more there are more, more shades of gray and certainly more than 50 shades of gray absolutely here. and so and therefore so you using this concepts here which is and this sounds extremely machiavellian i mean this is brihaspati you know if you go to a hindu temple you see the nava uh, the nine navagraha sector and you act, we actually pray to these gods and this is brihaspati telling indra that this is how you should deal with a more powerful enemy which about what i just recapped now i went a step further and spoke about okay let me test this hypothesis right so let's let's try to test some stuff so what is it what are the main hypotheses being tested here so an a- increase in asymmetry level between states should increase the likelihood of signing non aggression pacts yes correct absolutely But based yes. on this the second is an increase in asymmetry between rivals should decrease the likelihood of the conflict initiation by the weak so that's a th- second hypothesis there and the final hypothesis is an increase in asymmetry between rivals should see a decrease in the level or the likelihood of peaceful terminations there is rivalry terminations what that means is you reconcile but you don't end your hostility because remember what brihaspati said that don't you don't have to end your hostility you can but you have to hide it within wait until the stronger guy stronger side has become complacent uh this is the translation right. uh, so i'm Very going to so now you know so now i have i posed these three uh sort of hypotheses and for data obviously we don't have ancient data on this but we do have modern day conflict data starting from 1816 all the way to 2010 right. absolutely and and 1816 reason is 
you know that's when the napoleonic wars end in 1815 and after that you know that's usually seen as a watershed moment in european history all of this was originally europe centric of course now it's not so europe centric as it used to be so i actually used standard industry standard data that exists right now in uh political science it comes out of uh, a website called correlates of yes. war um and you, people can go and uh, access this yes. data set and i ran uh, essentially uh, proportional hazard models so survival analysis so i have two almost uh, 194 years of uh, conflict data uh, i have data on you know the presence of rivalries i have data on alliance patterns and i also have data on distance between these different countries because distance can matter uh, in terms of how quickly you're bandwagon if the enemy is right there in front of you you're more likely to bandwagon quickly as opposed to the enemy is far away and uh, so and i'm looking at the presence of other rivalries so for example india is constrained against pakistan not just because uh, of anything else but rather it also has an eastern front to take care of against china so its resources will always be divided on two fronts that's an important aspect regarding india's planning towards pakistan for example and the, what were the fi- uh, findings the findings were that as the as asymmetry increases and i can talk about how i'm measuring these things if there is time as asymmetry increases the probability of uh, or the likelihood that you will uh, sign a non aggression pact also increases and it is statistically significant uh same is true with uh the conflict dispute so weeks do uh sort of initiate conflicts even as asymmetry incre- right. increases provided provided there are allies both sides have allies sure and that's you know, the caveat like over tv paul and so on and so forth when they talk about truncated asymmetry and so on and so forth have brought right. in or or woven in some of these concepts it's just that none of this has been sort of you know a regression analysis if i may use that phrase um uh, yeah. as a bit of a you know uh, inappropriate but uh, apt analogy um hasn't been taken back to the to the origin source you know the origin story is missing and it seems to me that in a sense right. you're trying to give us an origin story right and uh, i mean i've i have sort of used tv paul's work uh, in my own sort of you know uh, work as well and what i'm doing here is because i have this access to data and you know some of these techniques i'm also testing these at like different levels of asymmetry over time uh, and things so when the, this analysis can really go a lot more uh, uh, has a, many more dimensions but for the purpose of sort of making this connection with the origin story and there is very there's very weak if if at all any statistical significance when it comes to predicting peaceful rivalry terminations so what you're seeing is rise in asymmetry between rivals can see an increase in the probability of non aggression pacts can see an increase in conflict uh, initiation provided there are allies but it will not predict peaceful rivalry terminations okay as we come to the end of this podcast give us your in a sense till now the key takeaways of your research why is it exciting to look at the mahabharat in this way and what do you hope to achieve so the most exciting part about looking at mahabharat this way is to actually chronicle india's contributions to uh the study of statecraft and the study of social sciences and governance and state building 
so that's the most important thing it it will always rem- remain in the realm my second point is it will always remain in the realm of uh philosophy and uh, you know quantification if we cannot test some of these hypotheses on modern day data because that shows the relevance of these origin stories they're really strong i mean you get you're getting statistical significance from the post industrial uh, from the industrial age for things that were said many many millennia back so these are sort of hardwired rules of engagement with your enemy third thing is that modern day indian statecraft i don't know about the current administration and all that but modern day indian statecraft in the last 70 years has forgotten this origin yes, story indeed indeed and i think our uh, and our neighbors unknowingly are following what brihaspati told indra as opposed to us who are doing who should be doing fascinating fascinating and and this is this is alarming at some level i don't want to sound too alarmist yeah. as well but uh if if it if, if, if it would be one thing if people knew about it and had decided against using this strategy but having spoken to quite a few people who are in the policy world i have my own doubts whether they even know about these shlokas and their presence in the mahabharat and that's more disconcerting to me than not in, in a sort of uh, not choosing it after de-